Salam everyone, welcome. You're watching the You Mentor Talk Show. I'm your host, Imran Daramsi. Thank you for joining us today. Um, before we start, we just wanted to highlight Umoja's new docu-series, Beyond the Game. It's a recap of all of Umoja's previous games, um, and you can catch it on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, the app, and the website. The last episode is coming soon, and if you haven't watched other episodes, this is one that you definitely don't want to miss. So subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our app to watch it as soon as it comes out tomorrow. Um, today, we're joined by Mehdi Bakri. He's a Yale biomedical engineering student who's on the board of Ma'rifa, a Shia youth organization. Working at the intersection of academia, advocacy, and community, Mehdi engages with youth to fight for health, justice, and a revolutionary Shia mindset. And just to remind everyone, if you have any questions for our speaker today, feel free to put them in the live chat and we'll bring them up and, and Mehdi will be happy to answer them. Um, so let me bring him in here. Assalamualaikum Mehdi, how are you? Thanks for joining us. Welcome Sam. Alhamdulillah, I'm well, how are you? I'm good, yeah, Alhamdulillah. Um, so let's start by talking about your academic journey. So you are um, an undergrad student in uh, biomedical engineering and a global health scholar. So talk about how biomedical engineering and global health fit together. Yeah, so um, this is something that I've always struggled with and uh, always tried to reconcile is my how do I bring my academic interests into the things and priorities um, that are important for me in, in the other work that I do. And um, biomedical engineering, like I, I've always been interested in technology and, uh, and science in that way, and I've always excelled at it. Similarly, um, I actually didn't know about the field of global health that well until I came into Yale and they have a global health scholars program where uh, I was able to learn about different application of technologies to um, uh, po uh, populations, underserved mm -hmm. populations abroad. And more specifically, I came to know about uh, conflict areas that I had always heard about through a more advocacy uh, shaped lens. So like Yemen or Iraq, Afghanistan. And I heard all of these health professionals talking about them, but from a global health mindset and framework. And both of them uh, overlapped in the area of justice. Global health is a really justice-oriented field, and uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of these like professors and stuff they see themselves as uh, as like fighting for justice or like putting war on the public health agenda and stuff. And they're very like advocacy focused. And I was really surprised by that because it was the first time in academia where I had seen justice. Uh, so prominently featured and that was really attractive to me it felt really fulfilling that uh through this academic pursuit i could also pursue justice and um naturally it somehow came to intersect where uh, through biomedical engineering i came to focus my research on cancer and then similarly through global health i started looking at conflict areas uh, such as iraq or afghanistan and how war and violence had affected cancer in those areas, uh, specifically mm -hmm. like refugees or internally displaced populations. So for example, like the research that I'm doing right now in, in, uh, on Iraq is looking at how um, the use of depleted uranium and other nuclear weapons by the US forces uh, in the 2003 invasion may have affected rates of cancer uh, over like the course of the following two decades. And it's actually really eye-opening to realize the extent to which the US used like nuclear weapons and stuff, but also mm -hmm. to the extent to which they hid their use of these weapons and the effects that uh, Iraqis are still facing to this day, Iraqi children, Iraqi families. Um, 
and like I can see this and I'm hoping for this research to come out and for it to turn into and sort of fall in place into this larger like anti-war advocacy that's going on in the US right now. And I find that to be like a really perfect intersection actually. Yeah, that's interesting that um, your academic interests dovetail with your student advocacy interests um, so much to the extent that they sort of feed off of each other. Um, right. So if you, if we wanna, um, why don't you talk about the disconnect between um, the fight for social justice domestically and assigning importance to the fight for social justice abroad? Because I know you were talking about that in the pre-interview as a very liberal institution. Um, you know, you saw the disconnect there and you wanted to help remedy right. it. Yeah, so uh, Yale is like traditionally considered a really woke school. It's super progressive. I mean, despite sending in a bunch of like neoconservative hawks into like different <laughs> administrations, like Bush administration stuff, it's also equally known as a really progressive institution. And the students are really politically active, constantly protesting one thing or another, uh, changing the name of this to that and like, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. And so I, uh, like in my community here in Orlando, I'd like obviously been part of a lot of the uh, good state rallies and stuff. And I was aware of all of these other um, like as Shias, we're generally we're focused on a lot of like foreign um, yeah. issues, foreign uh, like human rights crises and stuff. A lot of uh, human rights abuses against the Shia community, but also communities in the areas that we're in, like Pakistan and Iraq and Yemen and this. Mm -hmm. um, and so, I came to Yale expecting to see at least some branch of that kind of advocacy, even uh, at least like among the Muslim students. But the, even the Muslim students at Yale were primarily focused on Palestine. And right. the other causes that I had been advocating for my whole life, like Iraq or Yemen, got almost no attention. No attention among the Muslim students, no attention amongst the Arab students, no attention among the non-Arab, non-Muslim students, mm -hmm. and no attention among academia. And so uh, my friend and I, we were talking about this, how um, so much of the Yale liberal culture and so much of the progressive culture actually just ends up feeding into the very institutions that they're trying to dismantle. Like so many of these students at Yale are calling out, uh, like calling out politicians or this or that, or like advocating for one thing. And then they go through their four years at Yale and then they end up like becoming like a Wall Street stalwart or they go and join like some kind of like, they like advocate for climate change throughout their four years at Yale and then go and like join Exxon as like a, like a <laughs> And, and so we were, we were like, how do you, I mean, how, how does Yale that claims to be so progressive and is t and how do all these students who are tied to such a progressive identity, identity end up just uh, becoming like co-opted by the very system that they're trying to dismantle? And we saw that um, embodied in the, in the struggle around Yemen, which in such a politically conscious university, we were surprised that there wasn't any discussion around that. Mm -hmm. And so we started Students for Yemen which uh, was an organization, which is an organization of college students that hopes to create a collegiate movement mm -hmm. around um, ad, around uh, lobbying Congress to pass the War Powers Resolution will limit its ability to send weapons to sell weapons to Saudi or to support the Saudi coalition. But more broadly, we wanted to cultivate another uh, like peace conscious movement similar to like Vietnam which right. we saw was really lacking now. Like in, uh, in, during uh, during like the, the 60s and the 70s, it was such an avid, uh, such a strong um, like anti-war movement that was 
primarily carried on the backs of like youth and college students. And today we see so much of that same energy just being invested into like social media advocacy and stuff, but very little actual organizing done on campuses and institutions when our institutions have actually so much leverage mm -hmm. to achieve real social and political change. And so Alhamdulillah, that became into like a larger movement. We ended up doing several initiatives, um, both like on our campus, but also spreading out to other campuses. We had a national fast for Yemen, uh, where we asked people to fast from uh, sunrise to sunset and donate mm -hmm. the equivalent of their iftar to uh, one of our um, Yemen funds. And then um, after that, we uh, we were able, like other students approached us asking if they could make students for Yemen chapters at their schools. Actually, several Shia um, youth approached me asking if they could form students for Yemen chapters at their universities and stuff, which was uh, like really exciting for us that um, uh, that there's like real potential here. Right. So I just wanted to uh, want to expand on a point that you talked about, um, talking about the amount of institutional capital you have. Um, and, you know, uh, most of us who just by living here, um, we have some power to change the system. Um, what is like what is one way that you've actually seen that play out in your time at Yale? So, <laughs> I mean, like it's it's like pretty depressing when you think about like the amount of advocacy you do and then the kind of change that that actually ends up translating into right but um like one really solid campaign strategy and one really solid campaign that i've seen actually uh result in something is um has been uh, the divestment campaign and this is the divestment coalition i think almost every uni major university probably has a divestment coalition on campus uh, specifically targeting um, climate change mm -hmm. or like uh, divestment from uh, like prisons, uh, private prisons, like uh, mm -hmm. on the Mexican U.S. border. But a lot of these groups are, don't realize that the same companies that many of them are asking for like universities to divest from, which is basically uh, just for if people don't know, um, many like universities, especially private institutions, are um, they have like their university, but then they also have their like partner corporation that's investing in like a portfolio of companies in order to like keep up its um, endowment. And so Yale's endowment is invested into like a whole bunch of companies, but a lot of those companies are like, for example, um, like Chinese surveillance companies or like private prison companies, like ICE, uh, like um, suppliers, weapon suppliers. And a lot of them are also like Lockheed Martin, Boeing, mm -hmm. Raytheon, which are the uh, primary military uh, companies and military like our arms dealers that the U.S. uses to sell weapons to Saudi. And so we identified like these companies and a few others. And we went to like these uh, divestment coalition groups on campus, which are they're really robust and they do really strong on campus organizing. Like a lot of times they get uh, they, they host like huge sit ins and stuff that uh, and ended up getting like 30, 40 of them arrested at a time. Actually at Yale, we <laughs> year at the Harvard Yale football game, the divestment coalition did uh, came and sat in and during halftime on the game. Oh, wow. And, yeah. Please ended up arresting some like 40 uh, students and it made like national headlines for something. Um, but we so we like they're like a really robust group and they have a lot of support and a lot of sponsors. And so we tr went to them and we approached them and we were like, can we uh, join your campaign, but specifically targeting these three companies and then make one of our asks, like you, they have several asks 
to Yale that um, like several demands that they make. We were like, can you make one of those demands that um, Yale promised it will promise to not only divest, but never invest again mm-hmm. in, um, in a web in a company that's part of the military industrial complex, but specifically like a military supplier or weapons dealer, right? Uh, like Lockheed Martin, Raytheon or um, Boeing. Um, so that didn't work. Like Yale didn't actually listen to any of the demands, but <laughs> it was a really like good example of how like intersectional organizing can bring different groups with like slightly different objectives together mm-hmm. into a larger umbrella and actually like achieve something. On the uh, in the during the sit-in at Harvard Yale, we didn't um, like uh, we we had been doing like some Uyghur advocacy prior to that. Right. And so we joined in with the other environment, like students that were doing the environmental, like prote- climate change protests, but we brought in our like free Uyghur posters. So like amongst all like the climate change, like posters and pictures that were like surfacing uh, on the media, there were like three or four, like free Uyghur. <laughs> so you got Uyghur. some, you got some yeah, screen time. We got like some progress. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. But, um, it's like a, especially when it comes to like divestment and stuff that uh, universities, I mean, capital is ultimately what, uh, uh, like that that's their like only weapon that's their primary treasury mm-hmm. and so like you you strike at the heart of what's most important to them and that's their money and like i think the same strategy is what i suggest for uh like um going after like nike or amazon or apple for like for uh the free Uyghur now uh campaign that we're doing where um chasing after like several of these large corporations that are also um invested in a lot of these like forced labor camps that China is using and uh, in which they've enlisted a lot of Uyghur Muslims as well. Mm-hmm. For that strategy, it's like similar, like you go after the money. And a lot of people think that the the first way to do that would be to um, have a lot of people boycott it. But ultimately, it's not like super effective. Like how many millions of people are going to have to boycott to make a dent in Nike? Yeah. But if exactly. instead you go after their big contracts, like their contracts with universities, then you start like getting somewhere where you can actually um, you can actually pursue an effective strategy mm-hmm. to make change. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so we do have an audience question that just came in. Um, let me just put it on the screen. This one is from Sakina Nakvi. Um, so it says, Mehdi, what research you did you do to find a program slash university that was a perfect fit with your passion and ambitions? Yeah, so actually this ties in really well to uh, um, an initiative that I wanted to talk about today on this program, which is... Mm-hmm. Um, the Marifa Seekers and Scholars Program. So for those of you who don't know, Marifa is a national Shia youth organization that I'm a part of. Um, last This year, actually, in February, we hosted the first national conference for Shia youth, which was, alhamdulillah, really successful. We had over 250 Shia college students and grad students attend uh, mm-hmm. for like a weekend full of like self-discovery, reflection, and brainstorming for what the Shia youth can do to have a, a stronger presence, to have our voices heard, and what we can do to create a stronger network, a stronger community feeling, and right. to address our challenges in the realms of identity, spirituality, community, and activism. And justice was a really hot topic there. Uh, so Marifa, going off the success of our uh, of our um, uh, February conference, we sort of we sat down and hashed out our mission statement and came out with. Uh, a, a new framework that we have to address the needs of the Shia youth. And our goal is like we, through the conference, 
and several of our other like hopeful uh, programs, we were addressing the needs of college students, students who are already like in this phase of their life where, we're, where they're like mm -hmm. facing very real challenges and stuff. But in order to enrich the, the whole student journey that we foresee, we also want to invest in uh, the, the pipeline from the beginning. So this is like high school Shia students. Like it starts from high school thinking about the mm -hmm. values that are important. You're thinking about how you can incorporate Shiism and Shi'i understanding of justice into your work, how you can mm -hmm. be meaningful, how you can cultivate a pure Nia when you're looking and investing and doing these things that are gonna be life-changing in the future. And so part of that is the Seekers and Scholars program, uh, which is dedicated to high school students where we're trying to pair up uh, Shi'i high school students with Shi'i college students to help them through the college application process. But we're also hosting uh, workshops with Shi'i scholars and uh, college students who will talk about what some of the uh, like personal, academic, religious, and financial implications of this college application process are, which is really important for high school students to consider and think about. Mm -hmm. uh, like the question, which is like when you're deciding what college or what university to go to, like how do you make that decision? And I can't stress enough how important of a decision that is because uh, like, for example, for me, it was, it was a big deal. I left home, I went out of state, right. It was a new place, a new community. I didn't know the Shia community in, in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And uh, like, it was really scary for me having never left home before. It was scary for my family. And so it was like, a, it was a big decision that we had to make. And um, I knew like the, my, my entire life in high school and stuff, I'd always been, um, I'd always prioritized like academics so much and everything. And so when I finally got in to the universities that I had applied to, it became really real for me. Like, obviously you never think that it's real until you actually have to make this decision and you get like the acceptances that you get. Right. And once I did, that was, uh, it was like a really like tough time and a lot of reflection for me and my family to do. It was like, what do we value? How can we um, make this decision, but ensure that I'm not compromising on anything. I'm not compromising on either uh, my academic potential, but I'm also not mm -hmm. compromising on my like spiritual and religious potential. I'm not compromising on the value that I give to community and to being part of a, of Asia community. And so we, I, I, I like looked, did research into these different schools. Mm -hmm. I uh, researched into their academic programs and stuff. I didn't know, I knew at the time that I um, was interested in research. I knew I wanted to go into cancer research. I didn't know about global health. And so that's just one example of how like college opens up new uh, opportunities and new, new resources that you don't even know exist. And, um, but probably the most important consideration, honestly, was like what my religious life was gonna be like there. And we like called, we tried visiting uh, a few of the schools. Um, I have no family in Connecticut, but I have family in mm -hmm. New Jersey. It's comforting for my family. But we called Yale, we spoke to Yale's chaplain who um, is, uh, in my opinion, he's like one of the wisest uh, university chaplains ever. He has so much experience. He's been like a really good uh, figure to me uh, and mentor to me like over the last like few years. We like found out a couple interesting things about Yale, uh, such as, for example, like Yale went like all halal meat like two years ago <laughs> for their oh. own like, ethical reasons. Yeah, because like, like some uh, large proportion of the campus uh, wanted like uh, humanely raised humanely slaughtered animals and they were like well we also have muslim students so maybe we should so just go might as well just go all <laughs> yeah okay and, so that uh, showed you that they were like they were not only tolerating you but they were making actual space for you like 
you know. Yeah, well, so it wasn't yeah. actually even like a Muslim like effort. They just kind of just oh. did it on their own, oh. and they like told the chaplain about it, and he was like, "Where are you guys getting the meat from?" And they like confirmed like the uh, Zabiha like supplier like from nearby uh -huh. and like. Blah, blah, blah. but it was a big deal for me that i'd be able to like have halal meat there and also <laughs> meant to have a good relationship with their chaplain but these things are really important for me and my family like knowing that there was a muslim community there but not just a muslim community there was a shia community we called and spoke to like the connecticut uh imam barga people mm -hmm. talked about like the muharram programs uh and like their year-long programs etc so it was like a big decision but ultimately um I mean, like Allah is the best uh, of all planners and it worked out for me in ways that I never could have imagined it working out. So like my advice to all like high school students or students that are in this position is just to really think carefully and uh, try your hardest to be pure about your intentions and to interrogate why you want to go here or why you want to study this. Like whether it's because that's just what you've like been thinking you were going to do your whole life or it's because you actually want to do or want to study this, uh, whether it's because like people around you have been telling you that you should like study this or you should go here, or whether it's because you have actually found something that you can actualize in, whether you want to go to this university because it's a top 10 university and has a cool name, or mm -hmm. or like, you, want, you see yourself using this university as a runway to achieve something like bigger and greater than yourself in the future. Now, all these things are really important. You have to be really honest with yourself and treat it as seriously as it needs as it needs to and should be treated because like it's like it is life-changing these are really transformative right. years and you end up doing things that you never could have imagined that you're doing i like four years ago i never would have thought that i would be like on a uh, on a you mentor talk show like talking to people about <laughs> my it's like yeah, i couldn't have planned that right so, and yeah. and so was Oh, sorry. Let me. Uh, okay, so you can see me. Um, was biomedical engineering something that you had planned? Because I know you you said global health was not something you had planned. You didn't even know like exactly yeah. what it was when you went into Yale. How about biomedical engineering? Because I know yeah. um, it's like an up and coming field. So if you want to maybe go into that a little bit more. Yeah. So like biomedical engineering is um, it's a really fascinating field. <laughs> I, like for anyone who's like kind of like on the edge, the the way I like describe it is a biomedical engineer. Uh, is like a jack of all trades. So I didn't actually fall into biomedical engineering. I mean, I, I didn't choose biomedical, I fell into it kind of. So I started off as an applied math major with a focus in biology because like through high school, I'd always had like a really high aptitude for math. And mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is like probably where I can apply my best skills and everything and blah, blah, blah. And like biology was like my, I knew like I was interested in cancer. So I think this would be a cool way to do it. But two things like, made me switch towards biomedical engineering the first was um like the, the first math class i took at yale was really hard for me and i realized <laughs> that like i i had done well in math but that was because like the caliber of math and like at my like public institution was not the same as the caliber of math that like many of these other students who were coming from like exeter and stuff had learned yeah. And like many of them had done like linear algebra and stuff like that in like high school. And I was like, uh, no. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so it was like really hard. And I was like, maybe this isn't the right, maybe I should reconsider. And then the second like main reason was I started doing research in my first year of high school, which I always knew that I wanted to get into research. But the question was what? And I I'd like always had an interest in cancer, but I didn't know exact exactly what uh, I was interested in. And so I... Um, 
I like did a little bit of my own research, like trying to find intersections of technology and cancer. And I stumbled upon nanotechnology, which is like a really buzzwordy kind of thing. But I was like, I was like, what does that actually mean? What does real nanotechnology research look like? And so I, um, I like searched up a bunch of different professors and I like emailed them asking if I could talk to them. And thing with university professors is that like, if there's one thing that they like to talk about, it's their research. So mm -hmm. if you want to talk to them about their research, they're almost always down to do that with you. And so I went and I talked to a few of them and the professor was, was like really nice to me, had really engaging research uh, when you talked about it. And I joined him and he was an engineering professor. And so mm -hmm. he like talked to me about his field in his lab. I met a lot of biomedical engineering grad students who were doing really cool research also. But the thing um, that, that ultimately like sealed the deal for me was, uh, seeing the kind of students that were in biomedical engineering and also seeing the backgrounds and the experiences of the professors. So biomedical engineering is actually a really recent field. It's like maybe at mm -hmm. most like 30 years old or so. Right. Uh, it's kind of not a real field. It's like a, a weird hash of all of these other fields. So like the pure engineering disciplines are considered like chem chemical engineering, mechanical engineering, um, and electrical engineering are like the mm -hmm. three like pure engineering disciplines. And then the pure science disciplines are biology, chemistry, like physics, mathematics. These are all like pure fields. And like biomedical engineering is like what happens when you take all of those and you kind of just like shove it into <laughs> your life. It's like <laughs> a hybrid. Yeah, it's like, it's so, so yeah. So it's basically, it's, it's the jack of all trades. You're not as good at chemistry as the chemistry major. You're not as good as math as the math major. You're not as good at like electrical engineering or physics as any of those majors, but what you're good at is being able to synthesize all of those and create something new that none of those people could have created on their own. And I found that really attractive because what I think one of my like strongest suits was, and I think it's a feature of honestly being in an environment as like a, Sh a Shia Muslim like mm -hmm. in Pakistani in America, like all of these like different clashing identities, constantly being on the hyphen between this world and that world and blah, 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 this interest and that interest, like liking the humanities, liking STEM, like blah, blah, constantly being kind of at like the, the center, like at the nexus of all of these different fields and identities and blah, blah, blah. It, it was attractive to me that biomedical engineering also was at the interface of all of these other disciplines. And that as a biomedical engineer, you could like essentially focus on any part of uh, like human centered design. You right. could be like um, like a hardcore like academic. You could go into like hard science research for the rest of your life. You could go and go and become like a doctor if you wanted, or you could go into consulting uh, or like uh, biotech or um, like NGO management because mm -hmm. you essentially have uh, like a whole bunch of different skills that are tied together by their ability to cater to the human need. And that, that was like, I felt like that really summed up my like uh, best qualities because I wasn't as good at math as the math major and I wasn't as good at chemistry as a chemistry major, but uh, I could like do fine bringing chemistry and mathematics together to like right. free cancer. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So basically, I guess some general advice would be to find a field that speaks to you. Um, right. Mm -hmm. uh, like, and, and it doesn't just like speak to you. I mean, like maybe it doesn't like work out this way for everyone, but at least for me, like my experience, biomedical engineering didn't just speak to my academic interests. It kind of spoke to my whole approach to life. 
which was like synthesizing, synthesizing perspectives, synthesizing mm -hmm. identities, synthesizing peoples and communities. Like I find like that's what's attractive to me about biomedical engineering and it helps me, it, it kind of like leads into the other work that I'm doing. And I can use the skills that I gained from biomedical engineering, like, like top-down analysis, like human-centered design. And I apply those things to like the real work that I'm doing, like the community organizing I'm doing, mm -hmm. or like trying to create a, a structure for Marifa or this, or- um, Right. Yeah, it's like what I, I find, or like, or like global health justice. I, it's just like the skills that I'm learning, I can see them being applied to the things that I that are priorities for me in, mm -hmm. in my like extracurricular work. Hmm, interesting. So um, you mentioned that you apply your skills from biomedical engineering into Marfa, and I'm sure um, people want to find more information about Marfa. So I have the website up. Do you want to like maybe show us around a little bit before we end? Oh yeah, sure. Okay, so let me just put it up here. All right, so this question is from Sakina Nakvi. Where can parents and students find more information on Ma'rifa and the programs offered? So here's, here's yeah, so uh, we're, uh, you want to show us around. Um, yeah, we just came out with our uh, and our, our new website, uh, mm -hmm. which has our, uh, like our specified vision, as well as the different services that we offer, like for both college students and high school students. So like, yeah, on the, first, on the homepage, you can see some of the pictures from our conference. Um, right. And then like you see the two different Marfa logos, the blue one is more information about the conference and the red one mm -hmm. is for high school students. And so um, on the conference part, we have the report of the conference, which if you are if you wanna know what Marfa is about or what the, mm -hmm. the conference was like, there's the, the video, but there's also like a, um, a really nice report that details like the, the different speakers, the objectives, the goals of the conference and what some of our like primary achievements were. So definitely, like for parents, I'd like uh, ask you guys, like, please check that out and see some of the messages that we have for the Shia youth, which we think are some of the most important messages for the Shia youth. Our whole theme is reimagining the Shi'i student paradigm. How can we inform the Shi'i student voice? How can we try to cultivate a more reflective, a more critical framework for Shi'a students to to approach everything in their life from a Shi'a perspective? The mm -hmm academics that they do, the extracurricular work that they do, the organizing that they do, the activism that they do. How can we use like Shiism to inform and color all of that? Which is ultimately what I think is the only solution to the problems that we see today is like, how can we um, get Islam? How can we bring Shiism or Shi and Shi Islam to engage with the problems that we see around us that are caused by capitalism or neoliberalism or militarism and materialism? Um, like, and how can we create solutions to that by, by like focusing on ourselves mm -hmm. and projecting our internal, uh, like our internal reflection and our internal revitalization and internal spiritual cultivation how can we project that into the world around us? Like, what is the role of the prophetic in this age of social apathy? It's interesting. So, yeah, that's a lot. So, uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, I don't know. I kind of went off there. Uh, so you can, <laughs> um, if you go, go on the Seekers and Scholars tab, you can see uh -huh. the services we have for high school students, which is um, the, the Seekers and Scholars program that we have right now, which is ultimately divided into three um, services. Our one-on-one uh, -on -one pairing, which is for seniors, which uh, we have like um, me and so, and my and the whole team of advisors who have mm -hmm. gone through the process and gotten into the colleges of their top choice. Uh, we can uh, like we're offering one-on-one -on -one advising 
office okay. hours, uh, essay editing, college app uh, essay editing and interview prep. We have like students who um, have graduated or are currently studying at like Harvard, UPenn, um, Berkeley, Brown, uh, and many other like institutions. And like for the first time, we're kind of bringing together all of these skills and offering like a really robust college application advising program. But that's just one of the services for juniors and seniors both. We have national workshops, which mm -hmm. are um, more big picture things. So like the, these are the, the yeah, right here you can see the, we have the general national workshops, which are the uh, personal or religious or financial implications. So we do talk about stuff like FAFSA, but we also talk about um, deeper things like what is your story of self? How do you understand or describe uh, like what the things, what your motivations in life have been? what your goals in life are, how do you cultivate your story of self kind of in like a Marshall Gantz framework, which is like probably the most important thing you can do to write your personal statement. We also are offering community specific workshops. So these are uh, a mixture of our national workshops and the, some of the more skill-based workshopping that we do with the students, but we're making those cater, these cater to the community. So communities can actually um, uh, like uh, host one of these workshops where like our aim is to bring parents and students together on the same page. So like, we don't want to just focus only on, on the youth here. We want everyone to be in on this and everyone, everyone to be on the same page because ultimately the Shia youth will only excel, excel if the parents and the families and the communities are all investing in like the Shia youth and they're all on the same page and we're all sort of creating these frameworks together. And so that's definitely like uh, I would definitely ask um, different communities to um, to host workshops, community specific workshops, right. and try to get as many youth to attend. The national workshops will be more like webinar style, but the mm -hmm. community workshops. I mean, like pre-COVID, we were hoping to like get funding to like fly to communities to give them, but like now, like post-COVID, they'll also be virtual. But like, we'll be more interactive, uh, right. more breakdown style, and we'll have like things for both parents and youth as well. Um, so yeah, so I definitely um, encourage both like parents and youth to check out the website, see what Marifa's mission is about, see um, like whether you're a college student and you want to get involved or you're a high school student and you want like college application advice, there is something for all Shia youth there, uh, as well as for parents um, who want to see the report and stuff. We have uh, our conference was endorsed by a lot uh, like very intersectional um, Shia organizations, so both like mm -hmm. communities, but also like um, Shia organizations and organizations of ulama. So uh, actually, our keynote speaker was uh, Sayed uh, Kashmiri, who's the vice president of uh, the Imam Foundation. Um, uh, and then we also had like in addition to our our, our ulama, we had scholars, academics, community organizers, um, and student speakers. So that's kind of what makes us unique, is that we are. Uh, an amalgam of like different experiences, different backgrounds, and we bring a lot of insight from different areas. So like, yeah, like ac mm -hmm. academia, but also uh, we have like the guidance of our ulama, and then we have the experiences and the voices of the Shia youth who have been through this like already and can speak on it and reflect. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So marifaprograms.com. Yep, marifaprograms.com. Okay, well, thank you. Um, thanks for coming on our show today. Um, well, unfortunately, we have reached the end. I wish we could go on for <laughs> like an hour or two or three. Or even more. But <laughs> um, what's that? No, no, that's good. That's good. Um, 
we had a great show, I think. Um, so yeah, um, I think you're a mentor on the Emoja app, right? Yeah, I am. Okay. Uh, I just signed up like for this. Mm -hmm. So yeah, so if um, you know anyone wants to reach out to Mehdi with any questions, um, you can reach him through the Emoja app. Just download it on the Play Store, App Store, and then connect with him there. I think you'll need an Emoja account for that though. So yeah, thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks. Okay. Um, you were just listening to the You Mentor talk show. Oh, let me get that there. You were just listening to the You Mentor talk show. Join us again next week um, at 4 p.m. next week for a conversation with Zainab Merchant. Zainab is an author known for Princess Siana's Pen and To Be a Muslim. She's a journalist, sh social entrepreneur, and founder of the Zainab Writes blog and storytelling food network Table in Paradise. Zainab is also passionate about improving the conditions of the world we live in and bringing people together through shared experiences. So join us next week, 4 p.m., August 8th, to hear from Sister Zainab on YouTube Live.